Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm chapter 4. This is the last in our little Summer Through the Psalms series. We have made another summer. We have finished another summer with many opportunities to study God's Word, to study the Psalms, songs that were written to be instructive, to illuminate our understanding about who God is and about who we are in light of Him. Um, Next week, we will continue our series in the Gospel of John, and we're actually going to do an overview of chapters 1 and 2 next week. So we'll kind of cover everything that we covered this last year in one fell swoop, and then we'll dive into John chapter 3 with the new birth, and we'll spend a lot of time understanding what God's Word says about the new birth, about um, God so loving the world that He would give us His only begotten Son. So as we conclude our summer through the Psalms, I thought it would be good to go to Psalm 4 because it kind of ends in God's presence. It ends knowing that God is in control, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he works on our behalf. But again, we find ourselves with a psalm that deals with trials, with deals with troubles and suffering. And when we think of the psalms, we normally think of happy songs, and there are many happy songs, but the majority of the psalms deal with trouble, deal with trials, deal with difficulty. The reality of trials and trouble in our lives is that there is a vast spectrum of different kinds of trouble and trials. Even right now as we speak, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, many of them are going through troubles of being persecuted, of a threat of death, troubles that we've never even begun to understand or realize here. But we do have troubles And there are different shades of them. People are being persecuted. Um, That is trouble. But you know what? Walking outside down the street and stepping in gum, that's trouble. That stinks. That's never fun. There are different shades of trouble. There's the trouble of um, losing a loved one. And there's the trouble of a dog barking the entire night when you're trying to find sleep which is what happened to us last night. There was a party and dogs are just going crazy and I just think, owners, could you please put your dogs inside? And no, they don't. There are so many different shades of trouble. There are dark, deep, desperate, distressing shades of trouble and there is light, quickly passing, momentary troubles. All of them, though, are meant to be used by God for our good. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, The Problem of Pain, says a quote that I know that you guys have probably heard before. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses trouble, God uses trial to wake us up. And we see the psalmist in Psalm 4 dealing with trials and troubles. In fact, in Psalm 3, if you go back to Psalm 3, we have the context for David's trouble in Psalm 3. You can see the superscription, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. We've talked about that before this summer. We talked about what happened when Absalom was chasing after David. And we'll just read Psalm 3 so we have a little bit of a a backdrop, because Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 kind of go together. David writes, O Lord, my 
adversaries have increased. Look at how they have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. So I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. In the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble, David says, I find my rest in you. I trust in you. Psalm 4, the heading is, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Some psalms have the heading, A Prayer of David. Uh, Psalm 16 and Psalm 86 have the heading, A Prayer of David. And some are a song. It's for the choir director. But what we find is this prayer is, this section of Scripture is a prayer. It's a prayer that's set to music to be sung, but it's a prayer from David's soul in the midst of trials, in the midst of trouble, as he cries out to God. Calvin says, Whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught to us in this book. This chapter, Psalm chapter 4, is a a lesson on how to pray to God in the midst of trials. Bonhoeffer says, The only way to understand the Psalms is on your knees, the whole congregation praying the words of the Psalms with all its strength. And so we get an insight into David's mind and heart as he cries out to God. Traditionally, this is known as an evening prayer. Psalm chapter 3 is a morning prayer. Psalm chapter 4 is an evening prayer. Many interpreters believe that Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 go together. Most commentaries would say that they go together. They're very similar, and we don't have time to detail the similarities. You can look at them if you put Psalm 3 on one hand, Psalm 4 on the other hand. There's many similarities, but there's one glaring difference. And the glaring difference is in the superscription. Psalm 3 tells us the context of the suffering and the trials that David is going through. Psalm 3 lets us know what's happening, the surrounding context of what's going on. Psalm 4 doesn't tell us what's happening. A lot of people would say that it's still underneath the category of Psalm 4 with Absalom, fleeing Absalom. But I love that there's no superscription giving us the context. One pastor says it this way, the lack of precise identification of either adversaries or accusations is part of the genius of this psalm and that which makes it so appropriate for use by any man or woman. So whether you are dealing with troubles that are beyond your wildest fears or whether you are dealing with a trouble that's like stepping in gum and just having something that's annoying that's clinging to you, this psalm can be for you. No matter what spectrum of troubles or trials you are dealing with right now. Paul, the apostle, drew from this psalm. Um, He quotes it in Ephesians. Augustine, the early church father, repeatedly goes back to Psalm 4 in his confessions. Martin Luther quoted this passage as he was dying, and he called the end of this psalm the most helpful passage in the art of dying. And as I've said before, I believe that my job as a pastor, one of the privileges that I have is preparing your soul and my soul, preparing us for death. And Martin Luther said, this psalm is better than any other psalm out there to prepare your soul 
for death. The beauty of this psalm is that it addresses every shade of trouble and it teaches us to, to be very uh, strong Christians trusting in God in the midst of trouble and trial. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, said that a Christian is like a bell. The harder that he is struck, the clearer he will ring. Um, this psalm teaches us how to ring clearly in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering. It teaches us the value of trouble. We all experience it, so I think we would be wise to learn from it and to prepare our hearts, if we aren't in the midst of trial, to learn from it. Let's read it together. Psalm 4. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception, Selah? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. God, please open our eyes to see how magnificent you are in the midst of our troubles. And God, I just pray, I don't know all of the different shades of trouble that are represented in this room. I know many. And God, I pray that you would comfort each and every one of us with these words, that you would give us a heart of wisdom, that you would wrap your tender, loving arms around us in such a way that we would feel your presence, even as this passage says, lift up the light of your countenance, let us feel your presence, let us see your face. We want to know you're near. So comfort us in the midst of our trouble, and for those in this room that maybe they are not dealing with any trouble of any kind, of any shade, I pray that that they would prepare in their own hearts as they listen to your word for the trial that they're about to face. Instruct us now, we pray in your name. Amen. There are three aspects in this psalm that teach us of the value of trouble. The value of trouble. The first is in verse 1. And we can say it this way. Trouble presses us to pray. Trouble presses us to pray. Why is it good to go through trouble? We could go through so many other passages in Scripture that deal with this. James chapter 1, it's good that we go through trials of many kinds because they produce in us perseverance and endurance. And um, 1 Peter talks about this as well, that we have a hope that cannot be taken away and trials and persecution and all sorts of distress enable us to see that our hope is in God and not in this world. But Psalm 4 gives us three specific ways in which trouble is of value to us. We tend to throw trouble away, get it away. I don't want to feel this pain. I don't want to go through these difficulties. But the psalmist says, no, it's valuable. Don't kick against it right away. And it's valuable, number one, because it presses us to pray. This is just in verse 1. David says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Answer me when I call. 
Now, immediately when I read that, I think, man, I don't take that tone with my mom. Uh, How much more so am I not going to take that tone with God? Answer me when I call, God. Um, That's not going to go very well with your parents if, uh, if you try to speak to them that way. But there's a beauty in what David is saying. Trouble presses you to urgency, to plead with the God of the universe, who is the God who created you, and he's also the God who is your daddy, your Abba Father. This is quite a direct tone with God, but it's a tone that God loves because you flee to him in trouble. Our prayers become much more urgent. You've experienced that, right? In the midst of trials, in the midst of trouble, your prayers cease to be as eloquent as they normally are, and they become lifelines. Please, God, help me. I need you. If I don't have you, I will die. I will perish. Trouble presses us to pray these prayers to our God. And God loves that. You guys remember in Acts when Peter is imprisoned, the people are praying, God, get him out of prison. Please save him. The church is surrounded for a prayer meeting. God, please do the work to get Peter out. God loves that. I think that's why God leaves Peter in prison for a little while longer so that the people will pray, God, please, can you bring a miracle, bring about his return, his safety? And then you guys remember the story when Peter is actually released and he shows up at the door. There's a knock at the door. The little servant girl, Rhoda, goes out. Oh, it's Peter, goes in and tells the whole church that's praying for Peter, guys, your prayers have been answered. Peter's here. And the whole church says, yeah, right. It's, it's just his ghost. He's probably dead. Let's keep praying. God, please get Peter out of jail. Trouble presses us to pray. It produces in us more faith, a greater faith that God is the only one who can sustain us. Chrysostom, an early church father, said it this way. God answers when I call, not merely after I call. It's not like picking up the phone and dialing him and speaking to him and then putting the phone down and hoping that he'll call us back. God responds as we are calling to him, in the moment of us calling to him. He is speaking to us. He is guiding us. He is directing us. He is with us. But I love what David says. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. There's many ways that we could take this. God, you are my righteousness. I can't enter your throne room. I can't become uh, before you in such a way that I can stand and plead with you like this. I can't do that if you are not my righteousness. You are not giving me a good standing. But I think that more than that, and I think the grammar in the original lends itself to this, David is pleading with God's righteous character. David's saying, though all around me looks bad, you are still good. Though this looks like you don't know what you're doing, though this, these circumstances look like you don't care about me, you don't love me, you don't have my best interest in mind, or you can't do anything about it, the reality is you are still righteous. You are good. And that's why we can pray to our God. Why would we ever pray to God if we knew that he was not just? If we knew he was unjust, if we knew he was not righteous, what would the purpose of that prayer be? If we cried out to a God who was just like us, sometimes just, sometimes unjust, that's why David's theology of who God is informs his prayers and makes them even more urgent but more at peace because God is a God of righteousness, of justice. Whatever you're going through, it didn't slip by God. 
It's not something that God is struggling to deal with and wishes that he could fix, but he just doesn't have the power to. God is just. And so David says, please, as I pray to you, work in this situation, but I know regardless of what happens, you are good. We often, in the midst of trials, if we're stuck in the midst of trials, we often have our our lenses clouded, as it were, with the pain that we're going through. And we look at God's character through our circumstances. And we see, okay, our circumstances are bad, therefore God must be bad. And the reality is what David is teaching us is we need to look at our circumstances through the lens of God. God is good and righteous. Therefore, what's going on in our midst, in our circumstances, it's for our good. Even though it's difficult, even though it's painful, it's for our good. We know so many people that pray. I just read a statistic that said 12% of atheists pray. I don't know who they're praying to. But they believe that prayer has value in and of itself because it calms you, it soothes you. It's like meditation, yoga. Brothers and sisters, prayer has no value in and of itself, by itself. God does not ask us to pray so that while we are praying, we are calmed because it's some form of cathartic meditation. What makes prayer prayer is that we have access to God through Jesus. What makes prayer prayer is that we get to enter the throne room of God and speak to the one who created our being. Prayer's power is not prayer. It's the object of our prayers. It's God himself. Therefore, our prayers must be theologically informed. They must be urgent. They must be intelligent. They must be desperate. And they're worshipful as we call upon God and say, I need you. That's what prayer is for. And David prays as trouble presses him to do so. He then says at the end of verse 1, You, O God, have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. There's a beautiful word picture that you can't really see in the English in that first line. You have relieved me in my distress. Distress is a Hebrew word that's... Hebrew is a very picturesque language. It's a very graphic language. And the word distress is a word that means trapped or tight or walled in. And the word relieved is a word that means to broaden, to open up. And so what David is saying is, in the midst of these tight places that I've been in, you've opened them up. You've given me breathing room. It feels like an elephant sitting on my chest, and you, oh God, have taken that elephant away, as it were, and given me breathing room. You've taken care of me in the tight spaces. I've been squeezed in, been confined, and you have given me relief. Notice that he's speaking, though, in the past tense. You have done this in the past. Therefore, I'm calling upon you to do it again now. You have done it in the past. Spurgeon says, here is yet another example of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. Pleading past mercies. You have done this in the past as a ground for present favor. So please do it again for me now. Do it again for me now. If we could only remember all that God's done for us in the past, we would have confidence in our prayers for what he will do in the present and for who he will be for us in the future. David is pressed in his trouble to pray. There's an amazing book 
uh, by John Piper, who talked about it in Family Bible Hour, called Future Grace, that deals with this issue. Seeing what God has done, specifically in crushing his own son to be able to love you. Romans 8 says that we, we now, knowing that God has done the hardest thing, we know God will take care of us in the easy things. What God has done in the past with the, with the past grace, God will do again with future mercy, with future grace. So let tr- trouble press you to pray. Let it press you to go before God with urgent requests based on who you are, God, and your mercies and who you are for me and what you've done for me in the past. Do this for me now, please. By the way, we've done this on several occasions with our dear brothers and sisters, Micah and Molly Turner and their family. We've let the injustice of what they've been going through press us to pray. We've fasted for them. We've prayed for them. And based on the mercies that we've received from God in the past, we've said, you can do it again. Now please do it. The trouble that they have gone through has pressed us to pray with urgency. And you guys received the email, correct? God has answered those prayers. God has been merciful so much so beyond our wildest imaginations. It's when I hear the answers to the prayers that I've been praying, I just say, God, enlarge my faith, strengthen my faith. I didn't even think that this was going to be a reality. And you brought it to pass. Praise the Lord. God works even in our trouble, especially in our trouble, to press us to pray. The second truth that is preached to us, the value of trouble that we see, is number two. It's in verses two through six. Trouble not only presses us to pray, but number two, trouble preaches truth. Trouble preaches truth. David is going to address certain groups of people, and he's going to instruct them in the midst of his trouble. Because of his trouble, they've given him, his troubles have given him a lens to be able to preach truth. They've also given him a platform to be able to preach truth. In verses 2 through 3, David is going to speak to his enemies that are slandering him. In verses 4 through 5, David's going to speak to his friends who are angry at injustice that he's going through. In verse 6, David is going to counsel those who are despairing. One man's trouble, David's trouble, is being used by God to be instructive for others. That's why we are given burdens Burdens are to be borne by other people, to be carried. And as we bear the burdens of others, we see how to live based on the trouble that they are going through. It's one thing to go to church. It's quite another thing to go to your church, where people bear your burdens with you, where people cry out with urgency in the midst of your troubles for you. That's why we need each other. That's why we need uh, that's why we have church membership, so that we can be the body of Christ with one, with one another, to hear the truth that's preached in the middle of trouble, and to do that preaching ourselves when we are struggling. So first, let's see how David speaks to his enemies who are slandering him. This is verse 2. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Oh, sons of men is a term that we could just say they're somebodies. They're not nobodies. These people are important. They're prominent. They're slandering David. They're bringing trouble to David. We don't know exactly what they're doing. But one thing that we do know is that they despise David's honor. My Bible says honor. It could be translated glory. 
They despise his glory. Who's his glory? God. They despise the God that David is serving. They mock him. They slander him. And instead of pursuing God with everything that they have, they love the opposite. What is worthless? They aim at deception instead of the truth that God would bring. So David preaches in the midst of his trouble, um, stop slandering God because the trouble that you are bringing to me is nothing compared to the trouble that you will face when God deals with you. Pursue God and stop loving what is worthless. Don't aim at deception. Then he uses that word selah. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Selah means, um, it's, a tr- it's a transliterated word, like hallelujah or abba, or um, different words that we just kind of phonetically spell out from the Hebrew to the English, because we don't know exactly what it means. Um, so we, we leave it like cherubim, seraphim, we leave it in the, the Hebrew. The closest word relationship that we have in the Hebrew to this word selah is the word for look up, stop and look up. And so we tend to think that this is a musical note that's given to the choirs as they're singing. Uh, As they're singing through, they're singing, and then they see this musical note. Look up. You can stop. You can pause. There's going to be a musical interlude. That's the, uh, the word that we would use. A musical interlude. What is David doing? He's saying, hey, before we move on, we're going to stop. We're going to pause, and I want you to meditate on these realities. He's asking us this morning, are there any of us that would fall into these, uh, verse 2, these sons of men? Are there any of us that would look like this, that would be loving what is worthless and aiming at deception, that would love the things that are corruptible instead of Jesus Christ who will never fade away? How long? That's a, a phrase that means please stop. Come to an end. And so David says, before we move on, have you come to an end in your own seeking after that which will not satisfy. In your own slandering the name of God, have you come to the end yourself? Verse 3, he continues, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself, and the Lord hears when I call. You slander him, O sons of men. You think that he's dead. You don't think he's a reality. You don't think that he cares for me or that he loves me, but the Lord hears when I call. He uses that word, but, in the beginning, verse 3. But, in contrast to what you guys think, the reality is the Lord has set apart for himself, so that no one can touch them, the godly man. He set them apart. That, that word godly man, the, the word godly, we've talked a lot about hesed love, right? Covenant-keeping love. Um, it has inside of it a decision that has been made, and you're going to stick with it. Um, That's what God does with us. He chooses to love us, and he has made that promise and covenant, and he will never deny that that covenant. This word is not hesed, but this word godly is hasid. It's very similar to hesed. It means loyal or faithful ones. You guys probably know this term for uh, Jewish people, Hasidic Jewish people. Um, They're the ones that are the closest to the law. They, They have the phylacteries. They have the hats. They do all the different customs that... Um, good Jewish people would do, the most festal, the most loyal. That's Hasidic Jews, loyal, faithful. This word godly is Hasid, loyal, faithful, the one who is covenanting himself to God, no matter what would come. What is David preaching in the midst of his trouble? He's saying, God has not left you, and you don't leave God. Don't walk away. Trust in him, and if you will, he hears you. 
He has set you apart for him. Now you set yourself apart as well. Covenant with him. Have faith in him. What's the best defense against slander? If somebody's slandering you or slandering your God, what is the best defense against slander? David gives it to us right here. The best defense against slander is saying what God says about you. Somebody thinks that you are terrible, you're a riffraff, you are, and they just keep slandering you over and over and over again, persecuting you. The best defense is to say, this is what my God thinks about me. I am, I am a worm, I am depraved, and yet God died for me so that he could crown me with glory, so that I could be a co-heir with Jesus Christ and be able to call him brother, the one who died for me, who cherishes me. That's who I am. I'm made in God's image. I am dearly loved by God. Answer slander with the truth of who you are in Christ. That's what David does first. He preaches and he speaks truth to his enemies who are slandering him and speaks the truth to himself. Number two, David speaks to his friends who are angry. This is verses four and five. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Say la. That's, uh, you guys recognize that verse used by Paul in Ephesians. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry at what's going on, at the injustice that you see. Tremble, quake with anger. Let the injustice make you so furious. But don't sin. We know this. I know that you have been angry to the point of seething and, and, and trembling, quaking um, at injustices. Uh, it is football season. And I know that when you watch a game... And you see those funny-looking men dressed up like zebras, and they make a call that is blatantly incorrect. And it goes against your team, and your team loses because of their bad call, their wrong decision. You will seethe because you know the injustice that just happened to your team because of that funny-looking guy. We've been there, right? How much so should true injustice, moral injustice, be to us? It's one thing to be frustrated when a bunch of dudes are playing with a ball and playing a game. It's quite another thing to see, for instance, the videos that have been going on with Planned Parenthood, to see the injustice that's happening, that babies are being slaughtered day in and day out. If you can look at that and say, oh, that's okay, it's fine, um, you need to question where you are spiritually. You should be furious at what you see, at the slaughter of these innocent souls. You should be seething with anger. But don't sin. I love what just happened. And there was a protest, friendly protest. What would it look like to be angry at Planned Parenthood and sin? It's what some churches have even done, where they've bombed or blown them up. That's wrong. That's being angry and being sinful. David says, let the injustice that you see drive you to fury because they don't love God and God's holiness is being trashed, slandered. Innocent lives are being destroyed. But let it 
lead you not to sin. Let it lead you to prayer. Let it lead you to go before God and to peacefully protest and do all these other things. Let it lead you to that, but not to sin. David ultimately is saying, control your emotions and go to bed. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, tremble, be angry, don't sin, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Go to sleep. Be seething with anger, don't sin, meditate upon who God is, upon his control, and go to sleep. Get to a place where you know God's in control and he can deal with these things and I can sleep. And so he says, Selah, again, pause. Are any of you going through trials where you are so angry or so frustrated, rightfully so, at the injustice that you see, but it's keeping you awake at night? You aren't able to trust God enough to to have a good night's sleep. You are still anxious. You're still nervous. David says, be angry. Don't sin. Meditate upon who God is and his goodness and his care for you, his sovereignty in your life, and go to bed. Be still. And then he says this, verse 5, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. I love how he says this. You are angry at the sin that you see outside of you, and rightfully so. But then he says, you need to offer sacrifices of righteousness. Which means what? Meditate upon your bed on your own sinfulness and offer sacrifices for your sinfulness. Realize God can take care of the sin that's out there. You have enough sin that you are dealing with inside of you that you're not rightfully dealing with. Take care of that. Let the, atro- the atrocities that you see outside of you point you to the fact, even as we heard John Newton say this morning in uh, Family Bible Hour, that if the imaginations in his heart, if his wish- the wishes of his heart were actually to come true, he would have been far more wicked than he was. He was already a very wicked man. But he says, the wickedness that I lived out outside of me was nothing compared to what I wanted to live out inside of me. So many times we look at the atrocities going on outside of us and we think, how could anybody do this? And I understand that emotion, but let it turn the spotlight back to you and see yourself in a mirror and say, but for the grace of God, I would be doing the same thing and think it was nothing wrong. So David says, let these atrocities, let this slander, let the, uh, the sin that you see point you back to the fact that you are a sinner needing Jesus Christ, needing the righteousness of another, and trust in him. Trust in him. Another way to say it is, don't let the sin around you make you self-righteous. Don't let the sin around you make you like the Pharisee in Luke 18 to say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that. Instead, let it say to to your heart, let the trouble that you see around you press you to the place where you say, the only reason I'm not like that is because of you, God. But internally, inside my heart is that wicked. And only by the grace of God have I been spared. So he speaks to these friends. And he tells them, be still. Before you make a move, slow down. Trust in God. Wait for him. Paul uses this in Ephesians 4. Don't let the devil have an opportunity. Meditate. Deal with the sin that's going on in your own heart. And then move on. This is a great principle for us, by the way. If you are in the midst of trouble and you just want to lash out, don't. Wait. Stop. Um, Whenever I have a, a difficult 
email, a wordy email to send to somebody. Um, I never send it when I'm done drafting it. I always wait. I always wait at least a day so that I can sleep on it and come back and read it later. I always have my wife read it. How does it sound? I don't read it to her. I let her read it so I can... How does it sound? What's the tone in this? If you're dealing with an injustice that you see, we can tend to become so self-righteous that we just start seething and we start spewing forth things that we would want to take back when we're done. Harry Truman actually used to do this. He was uh, a little bit of a hothead. He was a notorious letter writer. If a, if a writer at a magazine uh, would write an article against him, he would write a letter back just saying, how are you saying these things? How incompetent can you be? He would always fire letters back. He wrote letters to his friends. He wrote letters to editors. He wrote letters even to his wife. And what he would do is he would write a letter. He'd address it to the person that he wanted to just spew and gush all these things to. He would write the letter. He'd sign it. He'd fold it up. He'd put it in an envelope and he'd put it in his desk. And he would never send the letter. He would just leave it there. He would meditate. He would figure out what's going on. He would deal with it and he would put the letter in his um, drawer and let it go. And the irony now, though no one ever saw it, is now they are in the National Archives for all of us to read and to see. So we did end up seeing them. I guess your sin does find you out. Um, But that's a great principle. Before you make a move in your anger over something that you see, an injustice that you see, slow down, wait, and process it as, David says, as you trust in the Lord. Finally, in this second point, he counsels those who are despairing. He's still preaching truth. He preaches to the slanderers. He preaches to his friends. And finally, in verse 6, he's going to preach to those who are despairing. They say, many are saying, who will show us any good? Uh, The answer is nobody. They're despairing. They're struggling. They might be in the midst of the atrocities as well. They might be in the midst of the injustice as well. They're being slandered. And they are saying, is anything good going to happen? Nothing's good going to happen. It's just all terrible. God can't spare us. God can't save us. I don't know if you guys have been there in your despair. where Your, your view of God is warped. Remember we talked about this with Job 6.26, where Job says wind words, right? The, the words of a despairing man are wind Just let them go. You're saying things that, as you listen to somebody despairing, uh, they're saying things and you're going, well, that's not right, and this isn't good, and this isn't right. Don't don't speak to that. We don't like um, when people move slower than us. Uh, Just yesterday, I'm in my car with my family. There was a guy, had to have been 107, on a motorcycle with a sidecar. Nothing's in the sidecar. And the light turns green. And once the light turns green and I'm behind somebody, the stopwatch goes off, right? Okay, one, two, I think he fell asleep. Honk, right? And I'm never doing it for me. I'm honking for all the people behind me, right? I want to love them. (laughs) So I just, come on, get a move on. Um, we struggle to be impatient with physical things. We struggle to be impatient with spiritual things. When somebody else is at a stoplight in their despair and distress, 
and you see because of God's character and God's control, it's a green light. You're okay. You can keep moving. And they just sit there. I can't move. I don't know what to do. We tend in our arrogance and our impatience to honk the horn. Come on, get moving. Trust in God. Hope in God. Hurry up. This isn't that bad. And David says very graciously, God, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. He doesn't turn to the despairing people and say, get a grip. It's not that bad. God's still in control. You'll be okay. He turns and he says, it's clear to me that they think that you are far off, God. They can't feel your presence. They can't see your control. So please, he prays for them. God, please let your presence be their comfort. Brothers and sisters, we need to let that instruct our hearts, especially for people. Our, our church, praise the Lord, is theologically astute more than most churches that I've been to, and I praise God for that. But in our theological correctness, when we, somebody, when we see somebody struggling in despair, we tend to honk the horn very quickly and say, get a move on, hurry up. The theology of our God and the grace that he has given to us should actually do the opposite. It should make us slower to react, more patient, because God was patient with you. If God dealt with you the way that you deal with despairing people, you would be dead because we never get it right away with God. So again, David teaches us with despairing people. I love that. He is despairing. He is troubling, but he's able to teach others and encourage them in the midst of his trouble. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. So trouble presses us to pray. Trouble preaches truth to us. And finally, number three, trouble provides our greatest need Trouble provides our greatest need. This is verses 7 and 8. The greatest need of trouble is take it away. No more trouble. Because we have trouble, we feel, I, I want no trouble. Because there's conflict, because there's sorrow, because there's pain, we say, I want no conflict, I want no sorrow, I want no pain. But the beauty of what God does is he says, not now, the pain will still be there, And in the midst of it, I'm going to give you two better things than relief. We just beg the Lord for relief. Take it away, take it away, take it away. And God says, I'm going to give you two greater things. Verses 7 and 8. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. And in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me to dwell in safety. God gives us gladness and peace in the midst of sorrow and conflict. God provides the greatest need in the midst of our trouble, in spite of our trouble, and even because of our trouble, because he alone is our peace and our joy and our security. Spurgeon says, better than bolts and bars is the protection of our God. Better than any defensive mechanism you can make, God protects you better. And so in the midst of slander, in the midst of maybe even being afraid for his life, if he's still fleeing from Absalom, if that is the context for this psalm, Maybe David is fleeing for his life, afraid that he might be killed. But he says, I can sleep. I can lie down in peace. I can sleep in peace because God makes me to dwell in safety. Similar to Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You take care of me in the midst of the storm. That's why Martin Luther said this is the best chapter to deal with death. Can you lie down and sleep, the ultimate sleep, 
in safety? Can you die in peace with gladness in your heart? You guys know this. Believers die differently than non-believers. My, my wife can attest to the fact that I have a strange um, fascination with Mount Everest. It just fascinates me that people would be crazy enough to risk their lives to climb something. Um, I've read a book, read a number of books on it, and there's a great book, Into Thin Air, that talks about the 96 tragedy when so many um, climbers died. And there's a, an interview, there's a video docu- documentary, and there's an interview where there's a guy who's stranded. They were supposed to turn back at 1 o'clock. They didn't turn back at 1 o'clock, and he wanted to make it to the summit. And because he doesn't turn back right away, he gets caught in a storm, and they have to spend the night outside of their camp, so they're stuck almost at the top of the mountain, uh, right about 30,000 feet in the air. Um, and he says, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be able to survive. He ends up surviving, but he recounts being there. there were, it was him and, I believe, five other climbers, and they huddled together. The, the whole point is we need warmth or else we're going to freeze to death. So they huddled together. And he says, he remembers him saying, I don't want to die. And hearing other people say, I don't want to die. And people crying, I can't die like this. I don't want to die. We even talked about that with John Newton, that John Newton aboard the Greyhound as it was starting to go down, he cries out, I am not fit to die. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the sting of death is sin. When we realize I'm about to enter into eternity and stand before God and I have sin that I need to account for, people start to freak out, and rightfully so. I'm also reading Pilgrim's Progress, and I watched this documentary and read this chapter in the exact same day, and it was such a contrast. So here are these non-believers saying, I can't die, I can't die, I don't want to die. And then Pilgrim's Progress, you remember in Vanity Fair, when Christian and faithful are told by evangelists, somebody's going to die, you're going to go in there and somebody's going to be killed. They're both put into stocks, they're put into jail, and it says that secretly between them, they aren't talking to each other, but secretly in their hearts, they both are wishing that it would be them that would die. They wanted to die. Believers deal with death radically different than non-believers. That's why we can, even on our deathbed, though it's sad, though it's sorrowful to say goodbye, We know, number one, we will be reunited with these loved ones, but number two, they are going to be in glory. We're going to be in glory. When we are on our deathbed, we are going to stand in glory the second that we enter into God's presence. That's why David says, I can lie down now. I can sleep now. I can sleep later. I can sleep even on my deathbed in safety because you alone make me to dwell in safety. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer in 1555 were sentenced to die by being burned at the stake for preaching the gospel. And Nicholas Ridley was in his cell the day before his execution, and his brother came to visit him. And his brother said, I'd like to stay with you. One last night before you die, I'd like to stay with you. And Nicholas Ridley said, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm fine. And he says, can I at least eat a meal with you? Yes. So they ate dinner together. And again, his brother said, let me stay with you. Let me stay with you this night. I'll stay up talking with you. I'll I'll pray with you. I want to be there with you. Tomorrow you will be burned at the stake. I want to be with you to comfort and to strengthen you. This is what Ridley said. No, no, you shall not. 
For I mind to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did in my life. Would you be able to say that with him? I don't, I don't need comfort. I don't need compassion. I can sleep more soundly tonight on the night of my execution than I ever have in my life. Why? Because God makes me to dwell in safety. Trouble presses us to pray. Trouble preaches truth to us. And trouble provides our greatest need. It helps us see this is not the way life is supposed to be and I need somebody who can deal with this for me. That's exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. The greatest trouble that you and I face is the trouble of sin and its consequences. Our sin demands, as we all have sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God, our sin demands a penalty, a consequence. That consequence, because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, that consequence is infinite separation from God forever in hell. So our greatest trouble is really our own fault. It's our sin. And even in our greatest trouble, God says, I love them. I care for them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In our greatest need, Jesus steps in, lives the perfect sinless life that we needed to live to get to heaven, but we could never live, dies the death that you and I deserve for our sin in our place, rises to get again to newness of life to offer us eternal life, salvation with him forever. Do you have gladness? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Do you have security in Jesus Christ, no matter what the troubles are? Can you say this morning, it is well with my soul, Because Jesus Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for me. He loves me. He cares for me. And even in the midst of the troubles that he's allowing me to go through, he's not withdrawing his grace. He's giving me even more grace and producing in me an eternal weight of glory. Father, I pray for our church as we go through trials of many kinds that we would learn to let trouble press us to pray, to let trouble preach truth to us, and ultimately to let trouble point us to our greatest need for a Savior and relief from the troubles in this life. And we know that that relief is coming. One day we will be with you in paradise for all of eternity. And so until that day, may we be able to say, it is well with our soul, no matter what life would bring. When peace